From Cathedral Hill in St. Paul, Minnesota, this is The Other Eleven, a podcast about the good, the bad, and the ugly of mental and behavioral health. My name is Andy Tiemann. I'm here again with Jackie and Andrew Wainwright, and today we'll be talking about rock bottom. It's a phrase thrown around quite a bit, especially since COVID hit, but that's just it. It's made its way into common vernacular, oftentimes even jokingly used to describe just a you know, a bad day or a bad time or maybe even a terrible moment. But of course, real, true rock bottom is something much, much more dire. Most commonly associated in reference to drug and alcohol abuse. So let's talk about that. And Jackie, I know you have a perfect metaphor featuring the one and only Mr. Humpty Dumpty. But first, Andrew, rock bottom, what do you know? So if you remember, you know, for, you know, let's call it thousands of years, right? We could be back in Egypt drinking rice wine or in Greece drinking wine from grapes, you know, all the way through recorded history until the mid-1930s when Alcoholics Anonymous pops onto the scene. Uh, alcoholism was untreated, right? Or untreatable by the medical community. They didn't have a fix for it. So uh, in the management of that, of that disease, they did wait for people to effectively hit rock bottom. They waited for folks to have some incident, some intervention, you know, probably self-generated that created enough self-recognition that they stopped drinking on their own, that they turned their behavior around. And if they didn't, uh, it's a progressive chronic illness, they would continue to drink until they died. So it was either an illness that you died of or an illness that you recovered from. But the only real recovery that was possible was some sort of self-generated recognition that occurred at a moment they would call rock bottom, something that shook them awake. So maybe, you know, in Roman times, you wreck your chariot. Today, you wreck your Porsche. You know, whatever it is, you drive it into a tree, and you get hurt bad enough that you're like, "Wow, I really don't want to do that again." I got to go home and tell my dad about the chariot and you know the whole thing. So, if you think about it in those terms, it's only been for a hundred years that we've really had treatment for the disease of alcoholism, right? If we call alcohol synonymous the first level of treatment, the first way that you know we're able to say we can intervene in the progress of this disease. And to Jackie's point, step in before things get bad enough and say they don't have to get this bad, that we can modulate the chronicity of the disease. We can interrupt the progress and we can create episodes and time periods where folks are in remission from the illness that they're struggling with. So I know we're talking about chemical dependency here specifically, but historically, when we talk about the language of rock bottom, that's, you know, what I'm drawing from. Uh, and, and then it gets carried over into other behavioral health illnesses. So this idea that Andy, for example, his anxiety is so bad, we're not going to step in and we're not going to do anything. We're going to let him hit rock bottom to self-recognize that he needs to do something about it or that your eating disorder, uh, you know, it's not my place to say how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you should eat in a day or whether, you know, one, it would be a good start. Uh, we're going to wait for you to hit rock bottom and for your weight to hit whatever unmanageable place that is before you self-disclose that you need help. And we don't do that in any other area of physical health, right? We, you know, we don't like let the gaping wound on folks' leg get bad enough that uh, finally the person decides to cut it off themselves and then, you know, sear it up with a hot iron so it stops bleeding and cauterizes. I mean, we don't we don't self-manage in physical health, right? We try and intervene and step in before things get worse. We recognize symptoms and say, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? I think the cornerstone of public health is predict and prevent, right? If we can identify symptoms earlier and we can get in front of it earlier, we can save ourselves from lots of downstream consequences. I think we like to... to claim that that's the cornerstone, but I have yet to see action around that being really the belief system that governs our healthcare thinking. 
Sure. But I think in larger public health and physical health, I'll look at, you know, uh, immunizations, right? For small kids, we're able to predict that if left unimmunized, you know, huge swaths of kids would get sick and mumps, measles, rubella, lots of other types of uh, communicable illnesses, they would get sick and die from as they had in previous centuries. We have immunizations. We have the way to do that at scale. And we've been doing it for decades and decades now with great results. So, I mean, I think there's, you can point to one huge public health success area where we are able to predict that more folks would die if we don't take predictive measure, preventative measures, and we are able to prevent those by immunizing them. So it I, yes, I, I was being dramatic. I, no, no, for sure. But I, I, I think that there's a good example there, right? That if we're able to do it in one area, we should be able to ex, we should be able to forecast and execute it in another area. So I think yes. the ask is fair that we should do this for behavioral health. If the tools exist, we should use them. As a fan of fairy tales and happily ever after, I'm going to use an example that I think we all can relate to. So uh, the old model is that. When Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall, which will happen because that's his rock bottom, all the king's horses and all the king's men, everybody here in the system is going to scramble and do everything they can to piece him back together. And at the end of the day, he's going to be the best possible version of somebody who took a terrible fall and stumbled off the wall and was reconstructed. Instead, what we're trying to do is take action so that he doesn't fall. Right. Or take action so that the wall's not quite as high and the fall's not quite as far. And, you know, the injury isn't as bad as it would have been had we all left him up there, you know, to his own devices for several years. And so I think if we can look at the equation from, from that angle, right? Like what can we do to make the fall not happen at all? Or what would happen if he didn't have to fall as far. I think the result is then we don't have to put them entirely back together from scratch and we can get them more, better, faster. We've all been through a period of time in which the stress that we've experienced is greater. Everybody, I don't care who you are, this last 18 months has been a period of time in which the stress levels have been high. All the decisions we have to make on a daily basis all of a sudden got harder. And so whoever you are, uh, you experience some stress related to that. Some people uh, may have tools and they're coping really well. Some people, maybe not so much. And maybe they were struggling before the pandemic started and they were struggling in a way that they were able to find an outlet that was bringing some relief. So they were, you know, going to the gym, or they were going out with friends. And then we took that coping mechanism away. And now they're really starting to struggle. And and maybe they haven't even realized how much they're struggling. But now 18 months later, they realize they haven't really left their house much. They don't have the desire to leave the house anymore. They don't talk to many people. They find themselves, you know, obsessing over thoughts. And really, all they do for most of their waking hours is worry about decisions about the outside world. And, and now it's in a place where it is having a huge impact on their ability to do daily activities, right? If we had called those people and offered help uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and maybe given them some tools to get through, then today they might not be at a place where the tool that is needed to really overcome that anxiety disorder is more of a 
intensive level of care, right? Maybe inpatient treatment, or maybe it's a more robust phobia that needs to be addressed. But the point is, if we can get to them earlier and offer the tools, then they have the ability to cope and recover without that type of intervention. The pandemic has forced us together on the same journey, like this great equalizer. And so I think we should take that as an opportunity to have it impact the wall. We're all on the wall. And it's just a question of how far is the fall, right? And can we raise the bottom? Can we put some help and some love out there in the world and make sure that everybody that's on the wall doesn't fall off? One way to think about that, to extend that metaphor, is if we're all lined up on this wall and people are falling, you know, probably front end back and to the left of us and to the right of us, and we're not supposed to acknowledge that, right? That, you know, the life's for the winners, right? It's just the people who are still on the wall. <laughs> I'm still on the wall. I'm still on the wall and don't look down, you know, because <laughs> all of the people who haven't made it are, are down there, right? Like up is good and down is bad. It's these traditional, you know, heaven and hell metaphors. Uh, so if we're still up and we're still hanging on, we're on the wall and we've got our balance, we're winning. And if we've fallen, those people are, they're gone. We're not going to acknowledge them anymore. There isn't any putting them back together. Like we're all on this wall together. If that's the metaphor we're carrying forward, you know, what if, and there's lots of ways to look at this, but what if we all linked arms, right? What if uh, I'm worried that the wind's going to blow and it's going to blow me off either forward or backwards. But if I'm linking arms with the person to the right of me and to the left of me, now all of a sudden I weigh, you know, a hundred thousand pounds because I'm tied to everybody that's on the wall and I'm not going to go anywhere. Right. So maybe it's this willingness to talk about my fear to the person to the left of me, the right of me that I'm, I'm afraid of falling. I'm scared of heights. I'm scared of looking down. The wind's pushing me and I'm getting closer and closer to the edge. If I was willing to give voice to my fears and admit that I'm not perfect and not have shame around my imperfection, right? And tell the people to the left and the right of me that I might need them to hold me up for a time period. And if they agreed to hold me up, that I would hold them up. And I think that together, uh, we create a more formidable concrete set of folks that aren't going to fall off this wall. Uh, I think I'm going to take it a step further because I think that's a non-data strategy of uh, how to approach the wall. I love your idea. I'm not trying to hate on it, but like that is a ba baseline approach. Like we absolutely 100% need to acknowledge that we're all on the wall. We're all together. And like linking arms sometimes is the strategy. But I would like to believe that not only can we link arms, but we know who needs our arm, when they need it, where on the wall they're sitting, what the weather is doing. I, I think we underestimate the ability that we have to predict exactly where the resources are needed. Because let's be honest, there's a lack of resources, right? There are only so many arms to go around. Maybe there's only so many seats on the wall. Another public health strategy is we have to be good ambassadors of the resources that are available to us and make sure that we are getting the right people to the right resources at the right time. And that can't be an everybody strategy, right? At the end of the day, that won't work, if, especially, you know, given the, the shortage of providers and, and specialists and inpatient beds. Um, and so it's our job to know who's on the wall, where they are, and what part of the wall at any given point in time is starting to roll road. And how are we going to reach the people that are at risk of falling off and do so in a way that they can reach back out and say, thank you, I needed that. And yes, I, I'm willing to accept help. So the question is, what is this going to look like? So you got to, I think we're still, we're talking macro here, you know. The amount of data that we have available to us is, is profound, but just a few small pieces of that data 
can give us a good insight into who may need help and at least have us allocate resources so we can keep people on the wall. So let's tie it back uh, to this idea of rock bottom and this idea of a reactive healthcare system. So rather than predict and prevent, we're back to chase and treat. Unfortunately, too much of behavioral health, how it gets recognized as individuals crash into the system late in the progression of their illness. So I'm alcoholic, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, and I crash in with multiple bruises, broken bones, and lacerations. It raises big red flags to all the people who see me at that time. But basic life events, that just living, right, that being amongst those walking on planet Earth is hard, right? Breathing is hard, you know, wearing clothes to keep the cold off our bodies. I mean, anything that, you know, we got out of the cave, we started fire, you know, it's like just making it through the day is hard, man. And we don't give enough credit to the daily struggle that supposedly it's hard to make a million dollars or raise 14 kids or do something extraordinary. Those things are hard too. I would tell you that it's hard to have a regular job and just be a person among people some days. Absolutely. I think the the difference between today and 10 years ago in terms of what we knew and how we went about helping people is that today we have the ability to aggregate large amounts of data, data that we've been given permission to process. Uh, we have the ability to look at that data and understand human behavior in a way we've never been able to do before. And that's that's the difference between somebody falling off the wall and somebody not. Rock bottom, Humpty Dumpty. Whether we're raising the ground or lowering the wall, there are things that can be done to predict and prevent. Signals, signs. What do you do if you're seeing those warning signs? Hopefully they are as obvious as a warning flare, but that's just it. Sometimes they're hard to identify, even in a loved one, especially for an employee who you might only ever interact with via Zoom. And that is exactly what we'll talk about in the next episode of The Other Eleven. How easy it is to hide in this work-from-home world we live in. Fix your hair, adjust your lighting, click the link, smile, nod, and just lock it up while you're on camera until you hit that big red end meeting button and sigh a big breath of relief. If you know, you know. And if you don't, you definitely need to check out the next episode. So please do like, subscribe, and tune in. Until then, be well, stay warm, and see you out there.